it's just become so um, almost blah, blah. We hear the word gospel so much, but we cannot afford to abstract the word gospel from person and the work of Christ. Welcome to the Am I Called podcast. Am I Called is a ministry that exists to help men find their call and to help pastors find called men. For more information and resources, visit amicalled.com. Now, here's your host, Dave Harvey. Good morning from Tallahassee, Florida, folks. This is Dave Harvey, and thanks for joining us again for another Am I Called podcast. Scotty Smith has quite a resume. He's a pastor, an author, a husband, a church planter, a blogger, a board member, seminary professor, a grandfather, just to name a few. But more important to Scotty than any of those roles is his call to be a gospel lover. People say of Scotty that if you scratch this guy, he, he bleeds gospel. Scotty, it's great to have you with us. Dave, it's great to be with you guys today for sure. You know, one of the extraordinary things, Scotty, about the day in which we live is, is kind of a growing emphasis on the gospel and a growing emphasis on being gospel-centered. It's, you know, it's just become one of those terms that you, you throw around a lot. Right, so, right. you know, to you, what, what does it really mean to be gospel-centered in, in the way that we live each and every day? Well, my understanding of that central question continues to grow, Dave, the more I slow down and listen to the Scripture. Uh, for me, increasingly, I find myself wanting to make sure that anytime we use the word gospel, either as a hyphenated word or something, that we be careful to shift into um, the person of the gospel. For, for me, therefore, for instance, when I think of gospel centrality or the gospel, I'm immediately now wanting to think about and communicate the person and the work of Jesus. Not just one dimension of that, uh, not even just in terms of good systematic theology, the categories, but uh, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, from Him, about Him, and unto Him. So for me, that's been a shift, especially in the, you know, in the season we're in where you appropriately said it's just become so um, almost blah, blah. We hear the word gospel so much, but we cannot afford to abstract the word gospel from person and the work of Christ. Does that mean that you're, you're eliminating more and more the use of the word gospel-centered from your vocabulary in lieu of talking just more about Jesus? I, I, I am with this uh, qualification. Uh, when I use the word gospel now, I try most of the time to use the fuller phrase, the gospel of the kingdom or the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, granted, in uh, a culture of tweets and uh, sound bites, we use abbreviation, but I've found now that you know, for a lot of us in this great movement, we've almost reduced the gospel just to a good doctrine of justification. But it's a far bigger story than that. So yeah, I'm talking a lot more about personal work of Christ or the gospel of the kingdom, which is not just personal, it's also cosmic. I guess one of the dangers of, of having the term overpopularized is that you, you end up maybe encountering the the term without the reality, or or maybe maybe you 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 begin to assume the reality. I you know I think about yes. was it Carson that made the quote, or maybe he was quoting another Mennonite leader when he talked about how 
one generation of Mennonites, you know, held believed the gospel and held that there were certain entailments, and the next generation assumed the gospel and elevated the entailments, yes. and and then the last one denied the gospel, and the entailments became everything. You know, do, do you think that's one of the effects of uh, of overpopularizing the uh, the, the gospel centered word? Yeah, I, I personally do, and of course, uh, I am um, one of the people that has been. Uh, absolutely delighted to raise our gospel speak, but just the older I get and the more I travel, the more I realize we've got to, let's use the breadth of the vocabulary the scriptures bring about. Let's make sure that we don't assume we share the same understanding of the gospel, and let's also be very attentive to exegete culturally right now, both within and outside the church. What do people understand when they hear the word gospel? Yeah, we always need to do that work and I think use a, a far more um, a plethora of images that come to us in the gospel. Yeah, that's very helpful, Scotty. Um, let me follow up with this question. You know, for for guys that might be pastors or guys that are aspiring to pastoral ministry, you know, how, how can they help their people move from simply the vocabulary that we were just talking about? You know, talking about being gospel centered to actually being gospel centered. Great question. Um, Dave, I think maybe when we were together in Louisville, maybe you heard me use this illustration that's been very helpful to me of seeing the gospel as lyric music and dance. Here we live in, uh, or I live in Nashville, Tennessee area, Music City, USA. And what I found helpful in the metaphor of the gospel as lyric music and dance, what it does for we pastors and, and other friends it introduces us to the important reality that the gospel has a lyric. There's a foundation, there are theological categories. We are talking about um, meaningful propositional information that we cannot take for granted. A lot of us have gone to seminaries, even fine evangelical seminaries, and we got one dimension of the theology of the gospel. So we're talking a good theology that we pastors, we need to love the word, we need to love theology, but a good song, as does the gospel, has a music, which is the affective heart. And Dave, a lot of your work, a lot of uh, your writings through the years have really compelled me in this direction. You Guys like you and Sam Storms that understand that a, a biblical epistemology, it's when truth is wrapped around our heart, that engagement with my soul. But then along with that, and this is another important connection, uh, again, music in Nashville, a good song is lyric, music, and dance. Dance to me in Scripture is the kingdom overflow. I, I love this magnificent benediction at the end of Romans when Paul says, the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. And the image there is this, that this gospel is always running, this good, rich theology, uh, this uh, affective liberation that grace brings to my heart is setting me free, not just from the courtroom of God's judgment, but into his story. So, you know, uh, kingdom living, living in light of good eschatology. I think that uh, we pastors, our, our gospel enlivenment is going to come from looking at all three of those, head, heart, and hands, lyric, music, and dance, and realizing that this isn't Neapolitan ice cream. I don't choose vanilla, chocolate, or strawberry. This gospel and envelops and calls us all into all those dimensions. So, you know, quickly, lest my answers get too long here, uh, this issue of a pastor learning to take care 
of their heart, uh, we, we can begin confusing knowledge with spirituality if we're not careful. We can, especially those of us that reclaim, that claim or are comfortable in Reformed theology as our uh, homeroom of theology, we can become very notional. We can become just as arrogant and disconnected in a grace theology as we used to be in what we call a legalistic theology. So all these things work together and they, they all need to be attended to by a pastor who would lead and love well a congregation. You know, as you're, as you're talking here, I'm remembering more of what you shared at that conference, the Sojourn Network conference on, uh, on the gospel. And uh, part of the context of your message there, as I recall, was what had to do with the ministry of Jack Miller and yes. the, the influence, the profound influence Miller has had on your life. Uh, Jack yeah. Miller taught it. Westminster Theological Seminary. He started churches. I mean, I lived in Philadelphia for for over two decades, and so the New Life Network was uh, right. was always a, uh, known to be a prominent work up there. Well, why don't you talk a little bit, Scotty, about how exposure to Jack Miller affected your specifically your application of the gospel? Good. That's a great question. Yeah. I, Dave, consider myself a very rich man to have had Jack first as a professor. About three years into his renewal, I started Westminster in January of 75, and Jack was just fresh and foaming at the mouth, and and uh, just a very contagious man to be around, as you remember. But what I saw in Jack was, um, he modeled for me before I theoretically understood what I just described in terms of theology capturing the heart, transforming us, liberating us, and compelling us into a life of missional living and loving. So even though Jack decried categories like the third use of the law, even though I never heard Jack talk about mortification, I saw Jack emulate a gospel-centered, gospel-captured life. So I watched him, I watched him the way he opened his home to you know, uh, rebels, fools, and idolaters. I watched him as he was so free to repent. I watched him as he humbled himself, uh, asking seminarians like me to pray for him that he would love his wife better. So I saw in Jack uh, a gospel-liberated life, even as I was working through those categories. And another thing I would mention, uh, Dave, uh, walking with Jack for 21 years, uh, spiritual son to spiritual father. Another thing that greatly intrigued me about Jack was the older he got leading up to his death at age 67, uh, he became more childlike. He became more radically committed to the means of grace. I never knew a man that loved to pray so much. Uh, he loved the Bible. He just spent time in scriptures. He was more childlike and had a better use of the means of grace that I find that a lot of us in the current gospel-centered movement, maybe perhaps um, we're not as quick to go there. We fear falling back into pietism or some kind of performance-based spirituality. But, but Jack really modeled, um, yeah, the goods to me, Dave, in a very profound way. One of the things I love about this story, Scotty, is the fact that you were you were having these experiences while you were in seminary. So you're you're a young man. You're you're trusting God that he's called you to the work of the gospel, and yet you haven't realized that yet, and you find yourself in seminary. So, so you know, why don't you talk to the guys that might be listening that are uh, either in seminary or, or feeling called to ministry, and talk to them about 
you know, what are some of the steps they can take? Think about some of the steps you took to to pursue a mentor or to really yeah. squeeze out of the experiences they have all that God might have for them. Uh, awesome question. Uh, fortunately, my very first spiritual mentor, Dave, was a uh, fun guy down in North Carolina, my home state. And uh, I was converted at a Billy Graham movie as a senior in high school in 1968, having been raised in a uh, church in North Carolina that I often describe as neither liberal or conservative. It was just Southern. We just went to church and we weren't fighting fundies or liberals. But in the midst of that, in 1968, uh, I responded to a message of Billy Graham through one of his earliest films. And the guy that started discipling me was working in our local YMCA in Burlington, North Carolina, a son of Methodist missionaries, a guy that had been kicked out of Asbury Seminary as a student because he was just a good uh, MK mission, missionary kid filled with spite and rebellion. And he ended up finishing at Duke Divinity School, then coming to Burlington. And he grabbed hold of us, about 25 of us, and started teaching us the Bible. But here's the point I want to make in terms of your question. I, his name was J.L. Williams. He's still alive, living a very missional life. Uh, but J.L., uh, modeled for a bunch of us, these 25 high school kids, whenever we'd go to a conference, whenever we would go anywhere, he would be on the front row, notepad open, taking notes. He modeled, stay thirsty, stay hungry. You've got something to learn from anybody. And I think J.L. modeled for me, uh, even before Jack Miller showed me this by his life, J.L. modeled risk or rust. Uh, look, you see someone that is in love with Jesus, look, uh, Knock on the door, be the Syrophoenician woman, ask for crumbs, go out of your way to put yourself in the way of men and women that are emulating uh, freedom, understanding, growth. And so when I went to Westminster Seminary, having been discipled by someone that would say, knock on doors, look, some of these people will be far more accessible to you than you can imagine. You know, that to me, Dave, was a real gift that going to Westminster, I just began to say, all right, Jack Miller, I'm going to camp out. You tell me when I'm crossing boundaries, but I want I want to know I'm intrigued with your heart. So I'd say to seminarians like me, I had no clue what my calling was going to be in seminary. I knew I was called to seminary, but from the very day I graduated, I did not know where that call was going to go. But what I did know was this, Dave, had a better picture than ever of what uh, grace at work in the life of men and women looks like in the leaders in front of me. And so uh, I encourage even now young men and women, protégés, to say, look, uh, camp out, move towards, uh, get to know dead saints in the pages of good books, but but seek people out, learn. Go, go knock on the doors of the Dave Harveys and say, Dave, you know, uh, how have you come to love Christ the way you have? So that, that's a part of what my response would be. Stay hungry, risk moving towards people like that. You know, it, it, it puts in my mind the idea that it's, it's not only important for young guys like you were to be seeking out men um, like the guy who led the youth ministry and, and Jack yeah. Miller, but, but important for guys that are our age to have a vision of ministry that involves 
um, having a Timothy or having a 25, yes. 25 young kids that they're they're working with. That really, it's a it's a two way street, and there ha- we have to have men that are committed to the next generation, and that commitment is demonstrated in the way it was for Jack Miller. You know, opening your home, opening Absolutely. your life, opening your you, you know your struggles with sin, where you're just yeah. being honest about the reality of of where you struggle and how the gospel, how Jesus is meeting you in that very place. That is so true, Dave. In fact, I think you and I would agree that we've got, in, in that very arena, we've got a lot to learn from the contemporary recovery movement. I've got a lot of friends that um, kind of had to go to the church's unpaid bills, namely 12-step groups, to begin to learn that rhythm of life, of looking back and looking forward. And uh, we, you know, a, a lot of us are so naive about assuming that I need to be healthier or more mature before I have anything to say to the generation behind me. Absolutely not. I mean, to me, the way this gospel runs in our hearts, we're gonna discover more of our weakness and brokenness, even as we discover more of Jesus's beauty the older we grow. So start now making yourself available to the younger men and women that would just love a conversation. so that rhythm, you know, it's throughout Scripture, it's throughout church history, and we can always be learning from someone, and we can always be extending and serving someone behind us. Well said, Scotty. Um, you know, it's, see, when I think about the gospel uh, and how it's understood and often how it's proclaimed, it, it seems like the church is often more oriented to seeing the gospel as applied more toward worldliness yes. and not necessarily toward what the Pharisees represented, you know, the religion or or the elder brother of the right. of the prodigal son parable. I, I, I brought a quote with me by Jerry Bridges, and I wanted to get you to comment on it because Jerry Bridges said that, quote, I believe that human morality rather than flagrant sin is the greatest obstacle to the gospel today. Could you comment on that, Scotty? Yes, and, and I uh, appreciate even the source of that quote, Jerry Bridges, who a lot of us through the years have enjoyed and appreciated greatly the ministry of the Navigators. But even the trajectory of Jerry Bridges' ministry and teaching through the years from when he wrote uh, The Pursuit of Holiness Unto the Disciplines of Grace, I think he, he, saw, that, uh, he saw that phenomenon more and more and more, namely, that elder brother spirit is far more predominant in a lot of our churches and Christian subculture than those running away for a hedonistic holiday. So, yeah, I, th- I think that we, 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 we need to see this. It's been true throughout church history that, um, that believers are just as in need of the gospel as non-believers and that sometimes that pharisaical performance-based spirit um, it, it, perpetuates our allergy or our yeah our allergic nature towards the gospel more so than anything else. And so it's why in our preaching and teaching, we've got to make sure that we're not dumbing down the law to make it doable and that we always are preaching the gospel as the third way, not the right, not the left, but this center reality that invites both elder brother under the father's dance floor and to the younger prodigal daughters and sons. And, uh, so that's my way of using, once again, too many words to say yes to Jerry Bridges' quote. We, uh, 
you know, it is stiltifying. It is, uh, you cannot read the gospels without seeing that Jesus was most censorious, most judgmental of that hardened self-righteousness that tends to permeate religious subculture. Yeah, well, it's almost counterintuitive to think that zealous obedience to the law can at times be be damning, except when it's Jesus Christ and him fulfilling, you know, the perfect requirements yes. of, or the requirements of the law perfectly, but that uh, the the Pharisees had it as a means of, I don't know, self-atonement. You know, yeah, it, very... it was the way they were going to be saved. And... Once again, as we read the scripture, as Jack taught me to read the whole canon of scripture, you know, the apostle Paul just goes off on that very notion. You know, he says, all right, you want to go that way of looking to the law for your righteousness? Well, then here's all you have to do. Obey it perfectly all the time. And if you violate one aspect of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. So, you know, the just the throughout Jesus's teaching, throughout the whole testimony of Scripture, we realize that the law demands a righteousness that can only be found in one, not just the person that died for us, but the person that lived for us, fulfilling its demands, namely Jesus. So, so Bridges is saying human morality is the greatest obstacle to the gospel today. What, what would you say, Scotty, are some of the other um, threats or obstacles to the gospel right now? Well, a, a, a burden I have, and maybe that's too strong of a word, a concern I have would be this, Dave. Uh, you know, the, that phenomenon of uh, the reality in Luke 15 of my penchant to run away and simply do life as pleasure fulfillment and self-fiefdom, that's always going to be there. It's in my heart until the day Jesus glorifies me and also this spirit of uh, elder brother self-righteousness. But but one of the things that I'm concerned about uh, is that, you know, the, the, the gospel of only notional righteousness. I think we need to do a better job in our day right now to help men and women that are escaping, truly escaping uh, the dungeon of performance-based spirituality, of uh, of all the perversions of, of all kinds of forms of Christian moralism and legalism to help them see more readily that, you know, this... Uh, as I said or even earlier, the one that got you out of the courtroom of judgment now is propelling you into the wonder of his story. I mean, all of history is bound up with God's commitment to redeem his people from the nations and ultimately to make all things new through Jesus. So uh, we need to be, we you know, we need to anticipate, we need to do a better job of helping people not just be glad they're no longer legalists, but to help them understand, here's the way the gospel is going to move us into fresh understandings of gospel-shaped sanctification and, and mortification. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned that there's a growing movement of some in the grace movement that are, again, are, are more glad they're no longer legalists and more cynical about those that are legalists than are becoming like in the story of Gideon and... Uh, you know, going against the Midianite army. I love that picture. You got 34,000, but only 300 one-handed water lappers. <laughs> uh, I, I want to see more grace-saturated, overwhelmed water lappers drinking living water saying, you know what? Until the king comes back, we're, there's still a war going on. And now that our identity is secure in Christ, now that we're over a lot of this 
craziness of thinking we can earn anything from God. Let's get after it. Let's love not our lives unto death. All they can do is kill us anyway. Yeah, and and that we you know we still live in a fallen world where sin still is our our biggest problem. You know, any yes. any way of conceiving of change that undermines the reality of sin as a as our biggest problem is going to be a threat to the it gospel. Really what, yeah. Whether it's the the self righteousness that makes somebody think that they're really above the effects of sin, or 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 a psychology. Of of human behavior that's that's wrongly applied, or a you know a sociology that makes a a family system bigger than it is, or you know, anything that would displace yeah. and I mean those things I, I would say are very significant and must be understood, but but we can't locate them as as causes to why we are the way we are. No, I agree completely, and I think that you know we cannot read either in this scripture or church history cannot read of any great movement of God's Spirit, a revival or renewal without realizing it's always marked by rediscovering the gospel of free justification and given evidence in uh, a hatred of sin and men and women uh, simultaneously weeping over their sin and rejoicing in the good news that God now fully delights in us because of who Jesus is. So that that's something I'm praying for more than my own life. Uh, you know, and I did see that in Jack Miller. Jack, Jack truly grieved sin. He didn't get sucked back into self-contempt, but uh, he lived a life of calling men and women to repentance. And I don't hear that message quite as much in the contemporary grace movement. Again, we're more wallowing in the glory of our imputed righteousness of Christ, but we're not realizing necessarily the connection is that now I really can take sin seriously. It no longer condemns me. Now I'm convictable and sin is sin. And yeah, there are genetic disorders from the fall. There's all kinds of things I take into consideration in terms of why I am the mess that I am, but it's always going to bring me to the freedom of repentance and uh, hating sin and loving the beauty of Jesus. Well, I think about, you know, just the other night when I had to confess to Kim uh, something harsh that I had said to her. And, uh, you know, that's just emblematic of a of a problem that I encounter each and every day, which is that I sin each and every day, which is why I need a savior each and every day. Yes. You know, you lose sin, you obliterate the need for a savior. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's a, hello. I mean, here we are a few days away from uh, finishing up our wonderful season of Lent, looking at Palm Sunday and Easter. And Jesus came to free us from our sin, not simply our low self-esteem or the horrors and rigors of being raised in nurtureless environments or whatever might be real data in our stories, but uh, stories that do not diminish the fact that I'm not just a victim of sin. I'm an agent, and grace frees me to see that and uh, to be convicted about it without falling back into condemnation, but really wanting to repent. Now, Scotty, you do quite a bit of traveling, and so you you get in and out of of quite a few churches. And I, I'm curious, as you're engaging pastors, or or let's say you're engaging churches, you're preaching, you're visiting there for a weekend. You know, how do you know whether you are experiencing a gospel centered church? Are there are there specific marks that you look for? How, how does that work? Well, yes, and and. Uh, like you, Dave, I never travel anywhere with a scorecard, but we all, by God's grace, get a nose for the gospel. And it's wonderful when you see 
things that would be far more congruent with, you know, a gospel-centeredness. And a few of the things that I always look for are uh, look in the leadership culture. Uh, is the senior pastor, are the leaders, are they extending God's welcoming heart? Do they seem to be those uh, growing in their awe of the gospel? I think it's a great thing when a leadership culture is marked by gospel astonishment. There's a childlikeness, there's an awe, there's a, a, a repentance. I think also a mark of uh, when the gospel is really more fully in play. There's a greater love for, uh, for prayer and for worship, not... Worship simply is something that we love to do with our favorite hymns, but that kind of worship culture that, uh, that is first and foremost centered on the triune God, but is bringing men and women uh, out of themselves into the presence of God and uh, is evidenced by the way they pray. That's going to be there, I think, also in a gospel-centered church. There is going to be uh, a love for, growing love for uh, seeing people come to Christ and, and for the implications of the outworking of the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom in one's community. If, if, if we think that we can plant our churches and have no concern to exegete the city where God has placed us, no concern for justice and mercy issues, that's, that's, a, that's a negative sign. So, uh, you know, some of those rhythms, uh, love for the Bible, love for people uh, in a congregation, uh, you know, if I'm Teaching in a church, I love to see when it looks more like there might be some uh, diversity emerging in that congregation. Uh, people that are outsiders looking in and they are made welcome. So those are some of the first things that come to me. Yeah, and I think another one to add would be um, how are they suffering? Uh, yeah, Everyone wow. suffers, yes. but are they, are they fleeing to a, a suffering Savior? Do they find comfort? In a suffering Savior, you know, does the pool of e eternity grow as they suffer? And, you know, the, the loneliness they might feel, the abandonment, um, d does, does what happened with Jesus at the cross bring them comfort in those times? Oh, that's great, Dave. No, uh, I will quote you on that uh, once and then it's mine. But, uh, no, under we need, so need that word today because... The gospel is not an anesthetic. The gospel actually sensitizes me, not just to my sin, but to the wounds of others. And I uh, think that when the gospel's in play, uh, you see men and women, their cry becomes more for change than for relief. And therefore, there's a good theology of suffering and for ourselves, but then also that growing sense of compassion for fellow sufferers. We're not trying to fix each other or just medicate pain, but to suffer well to the glory of God. Scotty, one of the things that I think people appreciate about your your ministry is this practice that you have in in writing out prayers. I mean, just yesterday I was I was online reading one of the prayers that you had written out. You do it on the Gospel Coalition blog regularly. Um, when did this practice start, and 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 does this practice contribute to the very gospel? focus that we're talking about today? Yeah, thank you. Uh, that's kind of a fun story to talk about these last three, four years that I've been uh, getting up early and writing daily prayers. Uh, that, in the last four years, was really born out of a season, Dave, in my life when I kind of grew into a uh, cruise control season in my own personal seeking of Christ and, and all of us in ministry 
you know, unless we're careful, we can start confusing being used by the Lord with really communing with Him. So I started getting up early and repenting, and because I am ADD, I felt it helpful to pray through Scripture and to, and to write as I went so I'd stay focused. And then I, ne- I never intended to start a prayer blog, never intended to write a book of prayers, but it just became something that um, I found that I, I think actually what happened was I wrote a few of the prayers for myself and I thought, you know, here's a friend struggling with something. I might just forward this prayer on. And then, so that kind of got life from there. But I, I go back to the fact that uh, why would I even want to pray? Why is that a rhythm of my life more precious than ever? Well, I, I just saw that emulated so well in the life of Jack Miller. And Jack just loved to pray anywhere, anytime, uh, it was a work, but it was a great joy. So I had it modeled, and then out of my own brokenness and need and weariness of life, I think actually Dave started that most uh, that just about four-year-old prayer blogging now, uh, or what became that, out of a season when I was suffering uh, as a leader. Just, you know, you, you cannot, if you stay in the body of Christ long enough, if you stay in any local church long enough, you will be a disappointment and you will be disappointed. And so I think it was a season of warfare. I just felt like, Lord, it's, this is just like Noah's Ark. If it, wasn't stink, if it wasn't for the storm outside, you couldn't stand the stink inside. I need you, Jesus. <laughs> so, so too much poop inside the Ark. And uh, I think that, uh, so that, you know, yeah, so that's kind of how that got started. And uh, it, it, I, you know, the, the blessing for me is every day as it continued that discipline, my heart is renewed, and, and yet I'll hear from someone in the world during the course of the day, somewhere, somewhere, someone says, you help me find voice, a pain, a lament, a longing that I did not know how to say. So it's, it's been a blessing to do that, but I, I need it, and uh, every single day I need it, no matter where I am. Your prayers, Scotty, are very um, passionate and articulate. Do you, when you're doing it in the morning, first thing, do you edit it? Do you change words? Or is this stream of consciousness? It is stream of consciousness. I had an eighth grade teacher, Dave, uh, who once said to me long before I was converted, she said, Scotty, you have a case of incurable uh, oral diarrhea, which wasn't a very nice image, but it was her way (laughs) of saying, you talk too much. You're always, words are everywhere. And so what happened to me uh, with that, I think, bent towards hyperactivity uh, in high school, I hated to read books. I just could not sit still. So in our education, you could, if you could have strong vocabulary grades, you could counterbalance, counterbalance the fact that you weren't good on reading retention. So I fell in love with words early. And then I started discipling all these musicians all around me, Dave, in God's providence, all the creative people I've been walking with. And I, I just kind of learned the rhythm of words. And uh, I love music. And so, no, when I get up and write in the morning, I don't, draft and write, I just read through a scripture, find out some aspect of my heart or from walking with friends that are struggling. I just think of some scripture that would be appropriate and I start literally writing and that that rhythm, those words just kind of flow out of me. And uh, But I, I, no, I don't edit or go back. It's just, I get up at about four every morning and it usually takes me, usually about including uh, the praying and the reading of the scripture and the writing, it's about an hour and 15-minute journey every morning. Well, I think I, I speak for a lot of people, Scotty, when I say we we thank God for your passion for words, for your 
your verbal diarrhea. And uh, <laughs> because I think it's 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 comporting, it's it's translating into um, mm. things that are being written for the benefit of others, prayers that are being prayed, books that are being written, mm. and uh, and and also for this podcast and the time that you've taken to join us to talk about well the most important thing in the world, the gospel. Thank you, Scotty. Thank you, Dave. Thank you so much for you, your life, your ministry. I'm glad at this season we've both been able to intersect with one another. So good to be with you, my brother. Folks, if you're looking for more information on Scotty, you can go to Gospel Coalition website. You can just Google his name. There's there's plenty to read and plenty that he's written that's worth reading. And if you're looking to read more or listen more uh, to material on gospel-centered ministry, uh, you can also jump over to the amicall.com site where you'll find all kinds of free stuff that's specifically designed to help men find their call and help the church find called men. So, in fact, check out, check out some of the past podcasts we've done with, you know, Paul Tripp and Mike Horton, Dave Pallison, and uh, and pray for some of the upcoming ones. We've got Randy Alcorn lined up, J.R. Vassar, Sam Storns, and some others as well. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Am I Called podcast, which was brought to you today by Four Oaks Community Church in Tallahassee, Florida. For more articles, interviews, and resources on calling and pastoral ministry, visit amicalled.com.